0: Well, once again, good morning. Welcome to First Baptist Church. We are so glad that you've joined us today for worship, whether it be here at 505 Community or through the wonders of the Internet. We are glad that you're with us, and we do trust and pray that God will speak to you through our time together in the ways that you need to hear from him. Yes. Yes. Well, you may have noticed that this week's sermon title is, is somewhat unusual, um, maybe not something that you would expect to see on a church bulletin. This, this Sunday's sermon is entitled, The Highway to Hell. The highway to hell. And you may look at that and go, Whoa. Robin was Robin wouldn't even say it all week. She would say the highway, highway to H-E double hockey sticks. And so it made me question the wisdom of calling it what I did. But at the same time, all week as I looked at the book of Jude and I looked at the passage that we had for today, there was no way around it. Jude doesn't give us a whole lot of like positive ways to turn the, this portion of the chapter of Jude. And I looked for it. My, my goal is normally, when I come to a text, to find the bright side, right? To find the way that we can make it about redemption and restoration and in any way that we can to point us towards salvation in Christ. And we're going to look at that today, but the reality is that sometimes we don't have any option. That there are times when we need to consider the reality that there is a hell. There's a country song out there that I like. One of my favorite country artists is Brad Paisley, and he has an enti- a song from a few years ago entitled, A Man Don't Have to Die, A Man Don't Have to Die, and in, in the song, it, it is it starts out in a, a sanctuary, much like ours, I would imagine, but in a country church, and as the preacher is preaching, the, some, some old man in the, the congregation stands up and he challenges the preacher and says, hey look, you're, you're screaming and yelling and pounding the pulpit and talking about hell. It really doesn't scare us, buddy. It doesn't scare us B- because we know what hell is. They, they say in the song, there's hell enough down here. And you know, often I, I really resonate with the song, and I agree with that. And normally when I when I listen to the song, it's one of those things that that encourages me and challenges me to try to find something positive, to try to something that's going to bring our attention to hope and healing and wholeness and, and restoration through Jesus. But the fact of the matter is, sometimes we need reminded that the other side does exist. Brad, in the song, says that that they, they want to focus on angels flying around and singing. They want to hear about how to get to heaven. They want to hear about resting ar- in the arms of Jesus. And you know, that's, 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 a noble, that's a noble pursuit, and that should be the center of what we do. But sometimes, we need reminded that the alternative does exist. And Jude... And this central portion, the center portion of Jude, one, it's only one chapter, but the center portion of his letter, he, he clearly reminds his readers that there is a highway to hell. If you would, turn with me to Jude, and we're going to be looking at verses 5 through 16 this morning. Verses 5 through 16 of Jude. And Jude says this. He says, though you already know all of this, I want to remind you that the Lord, at one time, delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on that great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who will suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and and heap abuse on celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn or slander him, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Yet these people slander whatever they do not understand. And the very things they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. Woe to them! They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. These people are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm. Shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind. Autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame. Wandering stars from whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of all the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness. And of all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. An encouraging passage of Scripture. Scripture. Jude, Jude doesn't pull any punches. And remember, if we, as we talked about last week, if you were here, Jude had said earlier in the chapter, he said, you know what, I wanted to come to you with this encouraging message. My desire was to come to you and talk about our shared faith. My, that was my desire. But, but the urgency of the situation demands that I reroute and that I talk about something else. And this is where Jude gets into the meat Of the issue. Jude really wants his readers to remember. One of the things that that is the overarching theme of Jude, if you will, is is this a, a reminder that rebellion is not a virtue. Rebellion is not a virtue. This is, this is something that, that we lose in our culture. Like even in the context of the song, The, the Highway to Hell, it, it, is, it is sung almost in a celebratory manner. We, we talk, our, our culture talks about, I'm, I'm going to raise some hell. We, we glorify doing what we want and doing that which is wrong in pursuit of a good time. And Jude says, it's not a good idea. He's reminding his readers that rebellion is not a virtue. Remembering is the key refrain of the book of Jude. The overwhelming theme of the first half of the book of Jude focused on that. Remember, we started in verses 1 through 4 last week. And in that, we saw that Jude wants his readers to remember whose they are. That like him, they are slaves of Jesus. That they belong to Christ that he is their master and king and they should submit to his authority and lead. They need to remember who Jesus is. That he is the sovereign king of the universe. And they need to hold on to Jesus with all they have. Here in verses 5-16 through 16, Jude shifts. And these next 12 verses serve as a, a history lent lesson. Reminding readers of past rebellion and consequences of that rebellion. Now Jude notes in verse 5, very first thing we read in our English text is, Though you already know all of this, I want to remind you. These are stories that Jude, Jude assumes that his readers are already going to know. He doesn't need to enumerate what he's about to say because they are part of the very fabric of of their their lives. They are things that they would have been reminded of early and often. Remember last week we talked about, well, who is this book to? This is another another piece of evidence that would convince us that, that Jude's book is to a first century Jewish audience, that it's not going to Gentiles because this is shared history. The reality is we could spend all day looking at instances in the Old Testament where where the author says, remember, 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 set this thing up so that you can remember and remind your children, remind yourselves, remember, remember. It is an overwhelming theme throughout the Old Testament. And these are things that Jude's audience, he, he takes for granted that they know. We, we have those things in our own culture, don't we? Things that, that we work really hard to make sure that we ourselves and our children re- remember. Or, or even events that are, are so significant in our history that we can't help but remember them. Just a f- few examples. I mean, we, we remember the Civil War, right? A lot of years ago, but we remember. And most of us could probably, on, on demand, could probably give at least a portion of the Gettysburg Address one of those things that, that we remind ourselves of, that we remind our children of, that we pass down. This rebellion that happened and, and the, the, the fissures that happened in American society and the culture. We want to remember that so we don't repeat it, right? The, 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 the Gettysburg Address says, Four score and seven years ago our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. Abraham Lincoln asks a similar question to to what Jude is putting Can we keep it together? And understand these are the consequences that rebellion brings about. Or perhaps a, a more modern, a couple more modern examples Pearl Harbor. I could probably start the phrase, and a great many of you, particularly those of you that are a little older, could finish it for me. December 7th, 1941. A day which will live in infamy. Or the more modern uh, reiteration of that same idea, 9-11, we simply say, never forget. There are certain things in our history that that we work hard to remember so that we don't repeat them, that we don't follow those same paths, that we don't suffer the same consequences. Winston Churchill famously said, those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Or as we put it in our biblical studies way, as we talk here at First Baptist Church, I often like to say, repetition means remember. Remember. Now, if that's true, how much does Jude really want his readers to remember in this instance? Remember, repeating a a statement or a concept in threes was a method used throughout the Bible, through the authors of the Bible, from beginning to to end. It it was a construct that they used to, to send a flashing light, if you will, of, hey, really pay attention to this. Remember what I'm saying here. Those triplets, if you will, were were a caution sign, a giant flashing caution sign that you want to pay attention to this. Well, if we look in the context of Jude, we actually see two sets of three that occur. We see in verses five through seven that Jude reminds them of three historic events the rebellion of God's people, the rebellion of the angels. And the rebellion of Sodom and Gomorrah. Then we have a little interlude in verses 8 through 10. And in verse 11 we see the second triplet. And the second triplet is the way of Cain, Balaam's error, and Korah's rebellion. Now what does he mean though? Remember, he takes for granted. He's sending this to a first century Hebrew audience, and he says, I know you already know these things, but I'm still going to remind you. Well, here we are in the 21st century, and we look at these, and we might be prone to say, I have no idea what you're talking about, Jude. What are these things? That, what are these stories that, that you bring to our attention? And what's, what's the point you're trying to make for us this morning? Well, I think the point that Jude is trying to make is this, that the heart of rebellion is not a hallmark for the people of God, but the key to the highway to hell. The heart of rebellion is not a hallmark of the follower of Christ or the people of God, but the key to the highway to hell. Now, something that we need to remember as first century Gentile Christians is this, that the stories of the Bible are our stories. And they are worthy of our continued reflection and remembrance. In 2 Timothy verses 3, 16 through 17, it tells us that all scripture is God-breathed. It is given by inspiration of God. It is the essence of God's character and conduct. And it is given for the productive use of the believer of God that we might be whole and complete for God's service. And Jude reminds us uh, of some of these God-inspired events that were recorded historically. And, and so this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to have a little Bible history lesson. And we're going to consider what these stories were and what they might mean for us. Well, Jude starts in verse 5 with, with the, this reminder. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the, Lord's, that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those Who did not believe. Well, what is this event that he's talking about? Because the fact of the matter is, we could look at a lot of different events in Israel's history where God saves his people at one instance, right? It is the common refrain and the common theme of the people of God in the Old Testament, right? They cry out for help. And the Bible tells us that the cry of the people of God came to the Lord, and he hears their cry, and God, in his mercy, comes down and he saves them. And then just a few verses later, we see them going their own way. They're like, God, okay, we've got it from here. Thank you for that. We will take it from here. We've got this. And then again we see, again it occurs that the, the cry comes to the Lord from the people of God, and they address the fact that they're sinned, and, and God brings destruction upon them. And, and they're like, God, save us. And God again comes and saves them. And then a little bit later, they're like, God, hey, we got this. The reality is that, that this, this tendency to forget and to go, to go our own way, to go astray and do our own thing is common. And it's particularly problematic from one generation to the next. We need these reminders. And so we're given this reminder. So what is the story that, Moses is, or that, that Jude is most likely referring to? Well, the story that, that historians believe he's referring to is the rebellion at Kadesh Barnea. The rebellion at Kadesh Barnea. Now Kadesh Barnea is on the southern border of Israel, southwest of the Dead Sea between Edom and Israel. It was the perfect place to set up camp before entering the land to take possession of it. And that's exactly what they did. We can go back and read the Old Testament. The story is there in Numbers chapter 13. And and so the people of Israel make their way through the desert after being delivered from Egypt, right? That is the initial deliverance, that God delivers the people from the hands of the Egyptian, delivers them from slavery. They, They make their way to the Dead Sea, and God in his glory and grace makes a pathway for them to the promised land, through the Red Sea, and destroys their enemies. Now, the point behind that is God showing them, hey, I'm going to fight these battles for you. Here we have the greatest superpower in the world, Egypt, chasing them down. And God has delivered them from them and destroyed their armies and sent them on their way. And God is demonstrating for them, there is no power on this earth that can keep you from my promises. Well, somehow, in the walk across the wilderness, if you will, from The Red Sea to Kadesh Barnea, the the people began to forget what was going on. And they set up camp at Kadesh Barnea, and the scripture tells us that God instructs the people to send 12 spies to check out the land. Now, we we might think, well, that their, their intent, that God's intent for sending these 12 spies into the land is military in nature, Right? That God wants them to go and see where where the strongholds are and to discern how they, the people of Israel, are going to overcome these great odds and these incredible enemies. But if you go back and you read God's instructions to Moses and to the Israelites, that is not what God says. God says, hey, I want you to go on a tour of the land and I want you to see how good it is. I want you to see that I told you so. That it's going to be an amazing land and I want you to go throughout it and I want you to bring back some of the fruit of the land to the people so that they can see just how great this place is so that they'll be encouraged as they go to take possession of it. But what happens? The people, these, these military 12 leaders go into the land and they do. They go and they bring back clusters of grapes that are so big that they have to cut down trees to create poles to carry them back. They find that the land is, as God said, is flowing with milk and honey. But they also discover that the land is inhabited by, quote, giants. The Nephilim. Now we're going we're to talk about that in a second so we won't get too locked into that. But, but they come back at, after the Lord directs them to go in. And once they get back, they're freaked out. They return from their reconnaissance and their basic response is, we can't do this. If we turn to Numbers chapter 13 right quick, we read their response in Numbers chapter 13, verses 26 and following. It says, they came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh, Kadesh Barnea, in the desert of Paran. And there they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. And they gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful. And the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country. And the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, The land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there of great size. We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. And we seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. They say, Look, we cannot do this. This is a hopeless situation. These people are ginormous and we are bugs to them, and they get it. They're going to squash us if we go in. This is a hopeless situation. We can't do this. All the while, God is saying, Hey, look, I'm going to show you the land, but go take it. This is your land. Go take it. It is yours. Now, remember, God has already showed them that He's going to bring victory from the jaws of defeat if they just continue following where God leads. They're good. They're good. This good land is going to be yours if you just faithfully follow me. And the Israelites are like, uh-uh, nah. So what do they do in response? Well, we look at verses four, chapter 14, verses 1 through 4, word continues to spread through the people and things go from bad to worse. The people look at the, the reality that's before them and they decide it would have been better for us back in Egypt. Can you imagine that? That, that at any point you look at the reality that's in front of you and say slavery would have been better. Let's go back to the under the whips of oppression of the Egyptians. That, that was better there. We had food to eat and there were graves aplenty back there. We don't got to get buried here. We can at least survive there. This is hopeless. Let's go back. It's better to go back. Not only do they decide to go back, they decide that they are going to stone Moses and his company, And go their own way. They're going to rebel. Not only against the Lord. But against the Lord's appointed leaders. And in Numbers 14. 5-9. Moses, Aaron, Joshua, and Caleb. Literally beg the people. On hands and knees. To trust and follow the Lord. But the people opt. For their own plan. To stone Moses and company. And head back. So what happens? The text tells us that God strikes down the ten who gave the bad report by plague. And then everybody else, aged 20 and older, is literally walked to death in the desert. You realize that's what happened in the wilderness wandering, right? That the people of Israel walking through the, 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 the deserts of, of the wilderness was, was not something purposeless. Sure, the people, they developed a trust for the Lord and they saw what was going on. But really, that whole 40 years of wandering was waiting out the previous generation. God says, you want to go do your own thing? You want to go back? Fine. We'll find you graves. We'll just walk you to death in the wilderness. And anyone 20 or older at the point of the rebellion died in the desert. Of those over 20 at the time of the rebellion, only Joshua and Caleb were allowed to enter the promised land. So what's the issue that Jude is addressing in in verse 5? The issue of the Israelites and the people of God is a failure to believe and follow God. It's a failure to believe and follow God. The people of God refused to continue following where he was leading them. Their fear of their opponents and the adversary before them outweighed their trust and faith in the Lord God. So the encouragement for us, as for the people to whom Jude is speaking, is this, that we need to trust God. We need to believe God and we need to follow him even in the face of insurmountable odds and situations that seem hopeless. Believe the Lord and follow him. Destruction comes by failure to faithfully follow. So then we see the second. So the first one is the rebellion at Kadesh Barnea. The second instance is the rebellion of the angels. And Jude notes in verse 6 that some of the angels failed to, quote, keep their positions of authority and that they, quote, abandoned their proper dwelling. Now what does this mean? What does this mean? What is the story to which Jude is, is referring Now, there are two options for us about what Jude is looking at or talking about in in this passage. The first is the obvious one that, that you and I are aware of that takes place in Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 9. And in Revelation 12, 7 through 9, it tells us this. It tells us, Then war broke out in the heavens. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to earth, and his angels with him. So it could be this. The the situation where Satan leads this revolt against God, but are consequently cast out of heaven. But the, the fact is that Revelation doesn't line up really clearly with what Jude is saying in this sense. Because Satan and his angels that, are, that followed him are cast to earth. The, the angels that, and, and, and they lead people astray, right? That's the warning that Satan, his angels are, are cast to earth where they lead the world astray. Well, these angels in Jude are held in chains. They aren't leading people astray. That at some point, these angels abandoned their posts and as a result were imprisoned, awaiting final judgment in darkness. So what is he talking about? Well, it's believed that Jude is actually referring to the apocryphal book of Enoch. Specifically, 1 Enoch chapter 6, verses 1-4. through four. And in this book, There is a chapter entitled, quote, The Rebellion of the Angels. In this book, it starts with a reading or a restatement of Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 2. One through four. And in Genesis six, one through four, it talks about the children of God seeing that the daughters of man were beautiful and coming down and cohabiting with them. Now there's there's lots of disagreement about what exactly this means, but it's believed by most scholars that it's talking about angelic beings deciding that they want to take they they want to live the human experience. That they abandoned their post as angels, that they left their, their positions of authority to which God had entrusted them and which God had placed them, came down and cohabited with women and created these giants, these, these amazingly huge half-man, half-human creatures that, that wrought destruction on the earth. We see even in the time of Moses that it was believed that they existed that the, and that they saw them, these, giant, these giants that, that destroyed men. And according to to information of Jude's day, it was believed that these half-angel, half-man creatures did exist historically and that they were cannibalistic, they were a thing to be feared, an abomination against God. We see that these angels in Jude's situation didn't start a war in heaven. They simply abandoned their post, leaving heaven for earth of their own choosing. They went and did their own thing. And as a result, it tells us in Jude that they were placed in chains, awaiting judgment. So what's at issue in this second rebellion that we see, this rebellion of these angelic messengers of God, these servants of God? Well, it's a failure to stay in our lane. These angels rejected their divine purpose and God-given calling and instead opted to go their own way and do their own thing. We need to remember to live the life to which God has called us. To pursue the purpose that God has for us. To understand the word of God and to seek to follow it. To seek to live in the life that God has given us. We mustn't ignore him and go our own way. So we see the rebellion of the angels in verse 6. Verse 7, we see the rebellion of Sodom and Gomorrah. The rebellion of Sodom and Gomorrah. And this is one that that we're much more familiar with. This is one that we know about, right? That we see in Genesis chapter 19 that Abram's lot nephew had moved to the, the, the river valley and he had he moved to these cities to live where there was green grass and everything was great. So his, he picked the best of the land is what the scripture tells us. And he moved there and in the process of time, he becomes prominent in the city. When we find find Lot in Genesis chapter 19, it tells us that he is sitting at the gate. He had taken up his seat at the city gate. Well, this isn't a random thing that it's telling us. The scripture is telling us that Lot had risen in position and prominence and now was a judge in the city of Sodom. So Abram's nephew is living there. But Sodom, the Bible tells us, was a terribly wicked city. And God, after he comes through and establishes his promise once again with Abraham, God says, hey, should I tell Abraham what I'm about to do? And he decides, yeah, I need to if he's my people and, and, and he's going to be be the one that represents me, he needs to know what's going on so he tells him I, I'm going down to Sodom and Gomorrah and I'm going to destroy them because the cry of their wickedness is so great that it's come up to me, and I'm going to go and destroy them and there's this interesting this interesting conversation that happens between between God and Abraham and and God Abraham who says, all right God so so if there are 50 righteous people there, will you destroy, will you destroy them or will you at least save it for 50? God's messenger is like, like, oh, okay, okay. For 50 people, for 50 people, I'll leave it alone. I, I will relent from the judgment that I'm going to bring. Abraham goes, well, okay, well, 50, that's great, but what what, what about 45, God? If I could just talk to you one more time, what if there are 45 righteous people in the valley? Will you still destroy it, or will you relent for 45 people? And God's like, 45 people, I'll hold off. It goes all the way down, and Abraham, like, wheels and deals with God, which... There's a totally different message in there for us. We won't go down that path right now. But he wheels and deals with God all the way down to, God, if there are five, if there are only five righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah, will you then relent from the destruction? And God's like, fine, for five people, five people all hold out, which is crazy. Because the angels go down to hang out, and the reality is that even with Lot's family living there, like you would think that Lot and his wife and his few daughters, that that like there's an easy win there. Like they've only got to find one native, Lot, his two daughters, and his wife. They only got to find one more person, in theory, that's righteous in the entirety of the town, and God's like, I can't do it. There's not even five good people. Not five reasonably righteous people in this town for me to spare my judgment. That is a terrible city. That is a bad city. So God is going to, for, actually it was ten, excuse me, ten righteous people in the city. God can't find it. God can't find it. Now, what's the issue at hand? Well, we, we like to believe that the issue was sexual immorality. And the fact is that Job, Jude clearly references that, that sexual immorality was clearly at issue. It's explicitly mentioned in Jude. It's explicitly mentioned in the Old Testament. But the term used in this case extends beyond homosexuality. right? That's what we want to focus on, though, because the the angels come down into the town, and they go into Lot's house, and they were playing. They're like, hey, we're just going to sleep out in the, the town square. And Lot's like, hey, that's a really bad idea. You don't want to do that. Now, for us, that doesn't make a difference, but that was common. People would just sleep in the town square, and people would come take care of you because hospitality was of utmost, utmost importance in the Eastern context. Lot's like, bro, you you do not want to do that. Just come stay at my house tonight. And so they're like, okay. So they come stay at, that, at Lot's house. And, and as night falls, it says that all of the men of the town Descend upon Lot's house, and they say, "Hey, send those two those two men that came into town. Send those strangers out there, so we can show them a good time in Sodom." Now, if I might be explicit, they there was an intent to violently rape these two men. And that, like, not the two people you want to like try to force yourself on. Two divine angels that have come to destroy you doesn't work real well for them, right? But we want to look at that and say, well, see homosexuality was the sin for which God was trying to destroy them. But the terminology used in Jude extends beyond that. See, we like we like focusing on on things that are sin categories that are outside of our own life. The fact is the term used with sexual immorality in Jude extends to premarital sex, prostitution, idol worship, and general lusting. Is it's a pretty broad thing that he's talking about here. But it goes beyond that, and it talks about their perversion. Now, Jude is not doubling down. He's not saying their issue is sexual immorality and perversion to say that they're the same thing. Perversion is actually a separate category. It is just a general sinfulness And the fact is, if we look through extra biblical information about Sodom and Gomorrah and biblical information, we see that the sin of Sodom goes beyond the things that we initially believe. That their perversion included being prideful, disregard for the poor, arrogance, hatred for foreigners, and other moral failings. Now listen to me, that is not just me arbitrarily making these things up. It is throughout the book of Ezekiel and throughout the rest of the Bible that it enumerates the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah. And the fact is, their sinfulness is much more pervasive than this one thing. And the reality is, we could probably find our sins of choice in there as well. Jude is making a a warning against general sinfulness. What he's really warning about is, is going completely and totally off path and just doing what feels good and what feels right to me. Sodom and Gomorrah lived by the rule of our day, and they just followed their hearts, did what feels right, what feels good. As we've seen in recent weeks, anytime we see that people do what's right in their own eyes, things go terribly wrong. And Jude is warning against this. If we might rephrase it, he's warning that we might beware the allure of my way or the highway. Because when our way fails to align with God's way, we find ourselves on a veritable highway to hell. Jude is warning against this. Now something that's important for us to understand... And in, in the translation from Greek to English, this becomes three different sentences, but the truth is it's one really long run-on sentence. Jude says, I want you, to, I know you already know about these three different events, but I want to remind you of them. And he ends with this statement, all of this being one sentence, and he says, These serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. Going our own way is the wrong way. And Jude warns against it. There are consequences to serving self and doing our own things, rebelling against God and choosing to try to find the good life and salvation in our own strength and our own power. Jude is warning them, saying, remember, this is an issue. So that's the first triplet. The rebellion at Kadesh Barnea the rebellion of the angels, and the rebellion of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now Jude, he, he, he talks about some things in verses 8 through 10, but he comes to the second triplet in verse 11. This time, Jude doesn't give any explanation. Like these, these situations are so famous in the first century that Jude just addresses them by proper titles. They are the way of Cain, Balaam's error, and Korah's rebellion. These were cultural things that you could just reference by their title and people would have known what he was talking about. Now the way of Cain we find in Genesis chapter 4, 1 through 10. And in Genesis chapter 4, we see that Cain and Abel bring sacrifices to God. They both bring sacrifices to God. And it tells us that Cain brought some of the fruit of the land, some crops, while Abel brought the firstborn. The choicest of his flocks. Cain just brings a little something that he had sitting around. Abel brings the very best of the best that he had to offer. Text tells us that, that God accepts Abel's offering but rejects Cain, Cain's and that Cain as a result becomes enraged. He is incensed that God would accept his brother's offering but not his own rather than repenting, as God suggests, and doing right the next time, Cain kills the competition. He murders his brother in cold blood. Which, consequently, as a brief side note, actually is the opportunity that we generally choose to take ourselves. That when we start playing the comparison game with ourselves and others, we often take the way of Cain as well. Because rather than fixing our actions and focusing on our lives and trying to do right in our lives, we want to look and say, well, what about them? It's much easier for us to focus on the other person and try to kill their character. To try to besmirch who they are and what they've done than it is for us to get right ourselves. This is the great American way. We would much rather tear other, others down than try to elevate our own behavior and to act rightly in our own lives. And historically, this is the way of humanity. It's much better, or much easier, if you will, to eliminate the competition than to try to get it right in our own lives. To admit our fault and try to find a way to faithfully do what's right with God's help. Cain having been the first one to murder someone and to commit such an egregious sin, was the ultimate bad guy in Israel's history. Even in the culture in the first century, he was the proverbial boogeyman that you didn't want to show up. Dr. Herb Bateman writes, Jewish tradition at that time tends to paint Cain as the epitome of a greedy, self-serving, and militant person whose pattern of living should be avoided. The way of Cain was the way of Satan, the adversary. The way of Cain, then, is to defy God and despise man. It is to be driven by emotion, allowing what we feel at the moment to determine our actions rather than love for God and love for others as we've been instructed. The way of Cain is to love self above all else. To pursue the objectives and the rise of almighty me over anyone else. Jude says, woe to them, they have taken the way of Cain. Then he goes on, he says, they have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. Well, what's What's Balaam's error? Well, we see Balaam's error again back in the book of Numbers. In the book of Numbers, chapter 22, we see that the people of Israel has finally made their way into the land. And they are taking names and kicking hind end. And the king of the Amalekites looks and he says, hey, we got to do something about this. So what does he do? He sends someone to find Balaam. Now, Balaam is what we might call a prophet for prophet. He, he is an ancient televangelist. He is a guy that you can bring in to purchase the favor of God if the price is right. Now, something that we've got to address about this is apparently it had worked. It had worked enough because word has spread that this guy, if you bring him out, he will either bless or curse whomever or whatever you want, and it works. Word of mouth had spread, and so this king of the Amalekites... Sends for Balaam, this prophet for prophet. Who rather than speaking the word of the Lord at God's leading, that was the job of a prophet, to speak. Thus says the Lord, the word of the Lord. People paid Balaam to bless or curse at will. Now, king of Moab hires him and brings him out. He wants to curse this, this powerful invading army that, that puts his people at risk. Unfortunately for Barak and for Balaam, that army just happened to be the people of God. So God comes to Balaam and he says, Balaam, you don't want to do this. This is a bad idea. These are my people, and I promise you that I am going to bless them and they are going to destroy any enemy, enemies that stand in their way. Do not go and curse these people. So what does Balaam do? Well, the next day. It tells us that Balaam saddles his donkey and heads on his way to curse the people of Israel. Whole bunch of stories happen where God sets up an angel and were it not for the donkey being stubborn and trying to save Balaam, his head would have been taken off by angel. But Balaam finally makes it to the mountain there with the king of the Amalekites. And he's preparing to do as he had said he would do to curse the people of Israel. And the passage tells us that every time Balaam opens his mouth, rather than cursing the people of Israel, he blesses them. And the king of the Amalekites is like, what are you doing? I brought you here to curse these people. And every time you open your dumb mouth, you're blessing them. This is not what I paid you for. Balaam's like, I can't help it. This is, this is all I can do. God is preventing me, and all I can do is speak the words that God is placing in my mouth. So we might think that, well, the story's over. Why, why, what's the issue with the way of Balaam? Is the, the way of Balaam trying to profit off of God's word, image, and likeness? Is it, is it a trying to profit off God? No, 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 no. That isn't the issue. The fact is that Balaam actually does his job. Balaam succeeds in the task Which he's called, just not in the way that was expected. Well, how so? Balaam comes up with a dastardly plan, and his plan is this: Look, I can't curse them, but I can get you, I can help you to, to lead them astray. So here's what you want to do: send your Amalekite women to go and marry in with the Israelite men. Play the long game. And as you marry in with these Israelite men, over time you can have your women convince them to worship other gods, your gods, and to, to integrate into the land. And that's exactly what he does. He, he sends them in and they, they lead these people astray. Balaam's error is in fact agreed. That is part of it. But it is also the su- seduction of spiritual and moral compromise for personal gain finding that middle ground between what God wants and what I want rather than following God wholeheartedly pursuing our own way for our own gain Jude says I- I'm warning you don't follow Balaam's error don't get drawn astray by what you see going on around you continue to focus don't rebel against God for your own preference and priority for your own good Finally, we see Korah's rebellion, which is found in Numbers chapter 16. And Korah was a leader of the tribe of Levi, who was extremely jealous of of Moses and Aaron. And he continually asked, well, why not me? Why shouldn't I be a leader? And they ask Moses and Aaron in the desert, they say, "Why, why should we keep you as this leader? Why do you get to put yourself above the rest of us? Why do you get to pick where we're going? I think I should be the leader. And he, Korah, and 250 others lead a rebellion. So Moses, rather than squashing the rebellion, says, fine, we'll take it to God. So they stand outside of the tabernacle with Korah and his people on one side, and Moses and his company on the other side. And they ask God, which do you want? And the Bible tells us that God opens the ground, and it consumes Korah, And the 250 that followed him. Fire consumes the 250. Korah's rebellion was driven by envy, resulted in a refusal to respect and submit to God ordained leadership. In their arrogance, Korah and his co conspirators believed that they knew better and sought to set themselves up as the leaders. And as a result, they were destroyed. And Jude says, beware the rebellion of Korah. In every instance that we look, all six instances that Jude reminds the people of, rebellion is the issue at hand. Rebellion against God, appointed and ordained leadership. Rebellion against God's purposes, plans, and promises. Rebellion against the word of God for not fitting our understanding or desires. It's rebellion against God himself, God is reminding us through Jude that rebellion is not befitting the believer lifestyle. Rebellion is is not a virtue. It's not that to which God has called us. But there's also a warning that goes with it. That unrepentant rebellion against God's will will result in divine judgment. The first trio served, according to Jude the end of verse verse 7, that they served as examples. All three are historic examples of what not to do and warnings of potential punishment. Those who failed to believe were destroyed. Angels who went their own way were placed in chains and kept for final and eternal judgment. Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed in a hail of sulfur and fire. Consequences for rebellion. People like these, according to Jude, reject authority and take issues into their own hands, acting in their own understanding and ignorance and bringing about their own destruction. All three serve as warnings of the fire of hell, which awaits those who refuse to repent and submit to the rule and reign of King Jesus. Those who refuse to faithfully follow God into the unknown and to trust God to bring about the result that he promises. The second trio form what scholars call a woe cry. We might say a woe cry should make us say, woe. It's meant to keep us from following their lead. Following their ways brings only shame and according to verse 13, eternal blackest darkness. Again, it is a warning against hell. Disaster and destruction lie ahead for those who follow the paths of these three. Instead, we must follow the example and the leadership of King Jesus. We shouldn't follow them. We shouldn't tolerate their influence and we shouldn't be them. The fact, brothers and sisters, is that ACDC was in fact right. There is a highway to hell. It is paved with good intentions and bad decisions. We run this road when we serve ourselves and let our rebellious hearts guide us. We may not want to hear about hell, but we need reminders. Jesus himself said, "Broad is the gate and wide is the road that leads to destruction, and many are those who take it. But narrow is the path, the gate and narrow is the path to life, and few are those who follow it." May we remember past failures. May we follow the instruction given by Jude and faithfully follow Jesus as he leads. May we reject the heart of rebellion And humbly submit to God, trusting in faith that he will do as he's promised in his good time as we faithfully follow him into the future. Father God, I pray that you would continue to guide and direct us by your grace. That you would give us the strength to follow and to submit to your lead. May we understand that salvation comes through you and you alone. Whether it be salvation for eternity or salvation in the here and now. God, we claim to trust you. We claim to have faith. May that be more than words for us today. We follow the path that you've laid out for us, the path of grace, the path of faith, the path of hope, the path of sacrificial service and love. And God, may your favor rest upon us. May you continue to rescue those around us from the fires of hell by faith through grace. May we be the conduits that share that message with them both in word and deed. In Jesus' name.